Hi, all. This is Melissa McKenzie of the American Spectator. Joining with me is Scott McKay of the, the American Spectator and also the Hayride in Louisiana. And this is our first spectacle podcast. And I'm very excited about this first episode. We're going to get started and see how we how we do. And um, I'm a little nervous about this. Scott, how are you feeling? Oh, I'm not nervous at all. <laughs> We've been work, uh, talking about doing this podcast for like a really, really long time. Um, so much so that like all of my folks like, Scott, when are y'all going to start that podcast? Um, so it's like finally here. And now I'm just, I just don't want to screw it up. That's, that's like that, my big thing is I really don't want to screw this podcast up. Well, I, I, I doubt that's possible. I wanted to start off before we get going on to anything other, any other topic, because, because we haven't done a podcast yet. And because so much has happened for you personally and professionally, I just wanted to talk about your book right. and make sure that the American spectator readers realize that we have a, an amazing author. There it is. Yeah. The revivalist manifesto in all its glory. Right. Um, well, I, I mean, I can just jump right in. Uh, and, and we've on the, the, the spectator, uh, we've kind of had a number of discussions of the book and a lot of things peripheral to what the book is about. Right. Which is uh, I, I, most people, I think, even within the Republican Party are extremely dissatisfied with the Republican Party um, on a number of bases, maybe chiefly among chief among them. The fact that the party has not, for a very long time, maybe since Reagan and maybe even way further back than that, uh, really sought to be the active ingredient in American politics, the governing party that, um, that leads the agenda. Um, and really, we're in a political era that started in 1932 that I think is ending now, um, where the Democrats really kind of controlled things, but it was sort of Daniel Patrick Moynihan liberals you know, like great society, liberals, New Deal Democrats uh, who kind of control the agenda and built all of the institutions in American politics that are currently sort of petering out right now, which is one of the reasons that the country is, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to say decline, but we're in flux. Um, and so that consensus around sort of a new deal, great society, welfare state, regulatory state, big government format, um, you know, it's breaking down because on the left, you have people that aren't even satisfied with the size of government that we have and want it to be even bigger. And on the right, I think you're, you know, you've reached sort of the end point of the tolerance of the size and scale of government that we have. Whereas sort of the Bush Republican Party over the last, you know, 30 years or so prior to Trump's arrival uh, was perfectly happy to try to purpose that government for, you know, quote unquote, conservative ends, which is one reason why you kept getting these pieces in National Review and places like that talking about, you know, the conservative case for X. Um, and, you know, for 30 years, Republican voters caught all this stuff and became more and more demoralized about American politics. Along comes Trump, who resurrected a movement that I think actually began with Reagan, resurfaced with Newt Gingrich and the contract uh, with America in 1994, came again with the Tea Party, and then now it's sort of the MAGA movement. I'm calling it the revivalist movement because I think it's going to become ultimately the active ingredient in American politics. 
Um, but that's a movement that's about going on offense. It's not about standing athwart history yelling stop. It's about, you know, doing something different than the way things have been. Not so much from a policy standpoint. I think most of the conservative policy stuff that's been established with a few tweaks that Trump threw in, most of that's probably pretty well set. I mean, a lot of it's been tried and we know it works. The politics rather than the policy is the real problem because the Republican Party is not good at that. Um, I think there is a wave of Republican politicians who are learning. Um, I look at Ron DeSantis and there's the standard. I mean, this is a hey, guy. Wait, wait a minute. Can, can, I, I'm, I'm a little confused. So what do you mean when you talk about they're good with policy, but not politics? And, and I'm thinking of this in context of I just got off a conference call with the um, Greg Abbott campaign here in uh, Texas. And they're basically saying that all of their polling is the same. It doesn't matter what your color, white, black, Hispanic, doesn't matter if you're in the Rio Grande Valley or in Houston or in one of the big cities. The concerns are, there's three concerns, crime, inflation, and immigration, and the border. Right. And nationally, that's, that's true. Not just Texas, it's everywhere. Really? Um, and so like, so what you're saying is, is that the Republicans have the policy answers to this, but they're not good at the retail politicking about it. Is that um, what you Well, okay. And and I love that you brought up like the that three-issue cocktail because it's the exact same thing that the uh Harvard Harris poll that was a national poll that just came out. Um identified those three issues as I mean, those are the ones that are important. The, the crazy thing about this, and, and I just put up a, a, a post at our other uh, site, Reviver.com, which is R-V-I-V-R.com, um, talking about the red wave about to come ashore. Um, and that poll is one of the indicators of it. You have this amazing harmony between the three issues that the voters are most motiva- motivated by, which, you, as you mentioned, is exactly right. Immigration, the border, inflation, the economy, and crime, Okay. They're also the three issues that the voters that that answered this poll said were the most important issues for Republican politicians. Okay, so you have this total harmony between what the public is looking for and what they think the Republicans are offering. Okay, Mm -hmm. now um, this is not evidence of genius on the part of Republicans. Okay, this is evidence of the utter destructive incompetence of team biden on these three issues in particular and it doesn't take i mean you know any idiot who's running for congress or the senate can look at these things and go hey my three issues are you know immigration the border crime and inflation in the economy and let's go run on that i mean it's and really if you think about um mitch mcconnell for example is the senate majority leader and the agenda that he has been you know, not all that aggressively trying to push uh, for his people. Like he didn't start out with anything like those three issues. I mean, Mitch McConnell actually. But, I mean, does ago. he care about those issues now? I mean, I, mean, I he could read a poll. So, yeah, probably. But I mean, <laughs> like he didn't. Like, I, Mitch McConnell didn't. OK, this is this is what this election is going to be. about. Mitch McConnell three months ago was talking about Ukraine. Right. Until until they realized, oh, you know what? The American people really don't give a damn about Ukraine. And in fact, 
they're not all that sure this is a thing we should even be involved in, or at least our voters are not. So eh, maybe we should talk about crime instead. Um, and this is like, you know, and I, I look at Mitch McConnell as the classic sort of Bush Republican politician. I mean, he's pure beltway. We're not talking about somebody that's overly concerned with, you know, average Americans and all this kind of stuff. This guy's been in D.C. His wife was Trump's transportation secretary. He's invested in China, like the whole bit. All right. Um, and that's not where Republican voters are. But I look at, like I said, a guy like a DeSantis is much more the standard, right? Who's not married to those Washington things. Um, and there's there's lots of other ones, too. Um, I, you know, I think more sort of our generation of Republican politicians, the Gen X types, the people who are late 40s to, you know, mid to late 50s, um, are much more in tune with sort of 2022 and what the public is about than the baby boomer, you know, uh, Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, uh, kind of old guard type guys who really, I mean, you know, it's like, let's go have lunch with the business at U.S. Chamber of Commerce and see what they have to say. Well, Scott, though, okay, I'm just going to say this. I, I don't think it's that they're out of step. I think they actually hate their base. And I think it's yeah. much more aggressive than that, because like, you see Mitt Romney, this is on our list of stuff to talk about, actively campaigning against a fellow senator who is a good, solid Republican vote right. in favor of a guy who's going to vote with the Democrats. Right. You know, so he's against Mike Lee, who I met, by the way, and who's fantastic. Yeah. He's a, you know, he's a constitutional expert. And here's Mitt Romney campaigning against him in Utah. I mean, what's up with that? And and then you have, um, I almost feel like Mitch McConnell, not almost, I feel like he doesn't want to win. And I feel like this race, despite all of these issues that we're talking about, is going to be much closer than it should be. And I have my reasons for that. I don't think that the voter uh, fraud issues have been cleaned up in like Pennsylvania. I think universal voting in places like Nevada and Oregon are going to affect races. So I, I, because there's so much inherent fraud, what do you think about that? Well, I, I think in some states they've done uh, some good work on election integrity and you're going to have more problems than you had in 2020. Um, I would look at to some extent, Arizona, I look at a little bit larger extent, Georgia. Um, it seems like they've done some things in Wisconsin that may be helpful. Uh, and so, you know, and then there's other states that weren't really going to be swing states, but you may see some swing districts congressionally within those states where you get some some um, some better um, some better things. But I go back and I look at some of these issue polls and I look some of this, some of this stuff. And in a lot of these races, I think you're going to see victory above the margin of fraud. Um, the Pennsylvania race obviously has been kind of a head scratcher all this time. Um, and a lot of that is Republican voters not coming home to Oz. Um, but I mean, every appearance that Fetterman makes on television or wherever else is so bad. Um, I mean, you know, that like you want to laugh at the guy, but then you kind of can't. Right. It's like, yeah, but he's still ahead. He's still, well, he's, ahead. Yeah, he's ahead. And I, you know, I don't know how much of that is shy voting. I don't know if you saw, this is probably three weeks ago now, 
uh, Robert Cahaley, who's the Trafalgar group, uh, goes on Dan Bongino's Fox News show. And they're talking about shy voters. And Cahaley, and they've got an entire methodology that's that's um, aimed at trying to uh, resolve the shy voter thing. They ask, like, well, who are all your neighbors voting for, right? Which is a way for somebody to say, well, I'm not voting for Trump, but all my neighbors are, right? And they can kind of maybe divine mm-hmm. something from that, even though the voters, they're answering the poll minute. But like his whole thing is he said, they're not answering polls. Like they, they're they not answering polls. And he's we're missing a ton of conservative voters out there who are absolutely going to come out to vote. And this thing is going to be bigger than any of the, anybody's polls are showing. Okay. And so if he's right, and honestly, I'm going to kind of go with a lot of what Kahaley says, because Trafalgar has been straight on again and again and again in a lot of their polling. And when he says, look, we're under polling Republicans, um, it tells me that if, you know, if this, if the race in Pennsylvania is three or whatever, it's probably not three, it's probably the other way. And, and Oz may be up two or three. Um, you well, know, okay, and if so up, that if might he's be up three, then I, you know, I don't know that you can fix enough votes in Philadelphia to, to, to do the job. I mean, I just don't know because the fact that, I mean, how do you get excited as a, as a, you know, not a machine Democrat voter, as just sort of an ordinary Democrat voter in, you know, Wilkes Bar or, or, you know, Lehigh, Pennsylvania, how do you get excited to go vote for Betterman? I mean, he's not a mainstream politician, even when he's right. Right. I mean, the guy was a, you know, let all the second degree murderers out of out of jail. And like, I mean, he's like a bad Bernie bro on a good day. And now he can't not only can he make complete sentences, he like they have to actually give him responses to interview questions on a teleprompter. Yes, I know that. But the thing is, I don't think they're going to turn out for that. I just really they, they, they turned out for Biden. Yeah, but and he was a he was a lump in a basement. The thing is, is that the like the early voting has already begun in Georgia, and yeah. it's overwhelming. Like the number of black votes is up dramatically this time. Yeah, but both candidates voting. are black though. Well, that oh okay, true, but well, I mean, the point is that if if twenty five thirty percent of them vote for Herschel, he's gonna win. No. So and that and that would be a reason. I mean, like that, you know, having two black candidates in the race would be a reason why black turnout would be higher than anything else. But the difference is it's not necessarily a 90 to 10 split of the black vote in Georgia like it almost always is. Right. I mean, you've got probably one of the top three or four, um, you know, black homegrown celebrities that Georgia has ever produced is on the Republican side of the ballot and you you know a lot of people who just aren't really all that political are going to be like oh herschel walker right like i mean this is like you know one of our greatest native sons terrific athlete yada 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 i'm gonna go vote for him they don't know anything about the issues it's one of the good things about running a celebrity it's like one of the bad things too because you don't really get that great in electorate but i mean like i'm not that scared of the fact that you have really high black turnout in early voting in georgia so okay, so so you're thinking not just a red wave, but like a red tsunami. Like you, because right, like so, like this is what's irritating me right now. I read, um, I can't remember if it's Politico or whatever, but they were like the Republicans are looking to pick up eleven seats. I think it was right. That um, was the, the YouGov poll. Mm-hmm. Yeah, CBS News YouGov. Okay, and 
So 11 seats. This should be a 100-seat election with how crappy things are, with how bad the Democrats are, with, you know, not just foreign policy, but domestically. I mean, what does it take exactly? And so, like, I wrote about this the other day that I think that the sleeper issue is that as long as the unemployment rate is low, it favors the Democrats, even with every other thing. Do you think I'm wrong about that? Well, um, I mean, put it this way. If the unemployment rate started jacking up to 7 8%, there, there'd be no Democrat Party left at all. I mean, they'd be, right. they'd be really bad. Well, that's but, not I mean, right. But, you know, um, when people are terrified to walk the streets at night, um, that's just as corrosive as unemployment. And when not only are um, you know, prices through the sky at the grocery store, but the shelves are empty. And I don't know if you've noticed it, but I mean, I got four different grocery stores close to my house and I've been kind of rotating among them. Shelves are empty, all of them, like all of them. And like, you, you know, you're buying different brands of stuff than you were buying before because your brand is like not even available. So, I mean, it's not just inflation, but it's a supply chain like thing, like stuff is not even available. So th there's that. And then, you know, the, the, the immigration piece and the border, you know, it's kind of like this esoteric thing until you drive around your town and you've got homeless people everywhere. And a lot of them are illegals who are homeless, who got dropped off, whether it was <laughs> Ron DeSantis or, or Dave Ducey or Greg Abbott busting them somewhere, or it's Biden who puts them Biden. on a plane in the middle of the night and leaves them someplace and they're homeless. Like there's no place for these guys to live. Housing prices are through the sky. They can't afford a, a house. Can't even afford to rent someplace. And they'd rather be homeless than live in like the slums of whatever city it is. Cause that's not safe. And so like you see these people everywhere. Um, and now, like, that's a thing. And everybody in the country sees it. They don't even know necessarily that they're illegals. Although a lot of them are, What's even worse is if it's fellow Americans who are homeless, you got this massive fentanyl crisis. I mean, all of these things are not just something that's being talked about in the six o'clock news. These are things people are living and it's palpable how bad things are. And I mean, I'm not telling you something that you're going to disagree with on this one. I know that, but um, you know, I, the, the YouGov poll that said, you know, we're talking about an 11 seat pickup for the GOP. I mean, I, you know, whatever. I, the way I look at that is the real clear politics average. The last time I looked, it was 24, which I think is probably a little bit better baseline. They were also talking 52-48 in the Senate. Um, I don't know that it gets more than that. I can see a combination of it getting to 53-47. More than that, I'm not going to go that far. I think the big like tsunami that you're really going to feel is going to be in state houses and governorships. Um, because there the Republican Party has kind of much more, um, well, I'll say revivalist candidates. Uh, people, you know, it's a lot easier to be a first time, uh, you know, a candidate for office uh, and go run for the state legislature. Right. Um, and so you're going to see way fewer kind of old guard Bush Republicans in on the ballot in those places. People really like those guys. Um, and it, you don't need $50 million to go run for those seats. And so I think the, like that's where you're going to see this massive wipeout is you're going to wake up and state legislature is going to be solid red. And you're, you know, you're going to have 
probably well upwards of 30 Republican governors when this is over. Um, you know, I think which, it's interesting. I mean, speaking of re Republican governors, like in New York with Hochul, <laughs> it, it went, uh, so like during the during the last um, COVID years where New York City lost a lot of um, population oh, yeah. and anybody who was conservative or had a had a brain or an instinct for self-preservation at all left. And because of that, and because, I mean, upstate has always been hillbillyville. This is something that people who don't know, like I lived up there and the rednecks were redneckier in some ways in upstate New York than they are in Texas. Right. Yeah, and, North Westchester County, it's it's Alabama. It's it's Alabama with snow, basically. Yeah, exactly. And so like you and it's the same also in um like Michigan and some of these and Wisconsin you get outside of Madison, Wisconsin, you get outside to some of the city, you know, Detroit and and whatnot in Michigan, and you are in uh you know the bitter clingers that Obama talked yeah. about. And and they absolutely hate the liberal policies. And like in New York, I'm just like, have they had enough of a population shift to make it so that a Republican can actually win in that state? I mean, that would be amazing if if they've lost enough Democrat voters or the it's gotten a whole lot more concentrated maybe in New York City. Um, and I say to the New Yorkers who are enjoying their crime wave and everything that they voted for, um, Oh, well, you know, I, I, I that's kind of how I feel about all of these cities who, um, you know, caused the chaos that they did with BLM and Antifa for political reasons, not because they care about black people, but so they could they could get a Democrat elected because, you know, people were just like, make it stop. And so, well, if Biden comes in, it'll stop. But I, I was like, no, once you once you go down this road. You know, it, it it takes a lot to build a civilization. Doesn't take much to unwind it. And I don't see how these cities, even if they change leadership, can undo some of the damage that they've done. Because businesses can't just come back in. You know, the ones that have closed. I don't know. What do you think well, about it's, that? I mean, it, it's not even so much they can't come back in. They're not idiots. Right. right. Like, wh why would you open a store? I, you know, you see this all over the country. You get these these you know, gangs of punk kids that knock over some convenience store, throw everything around and you know, loot the place and beat up the, you know, the guy. And, you know, nobody mentions what any of this stuff actually is, because all of these convenience stores are basically owned by immigrants. Most of them, you know, Asian-Americans of some stripe or another, whether Koreans or Pakistanis or whatever. And of course, they open these things up in the inner city because it's like the cheapest place to open a business, except you find out the reason it's the cheapest place to open a business is because you're, you know, it's like the worst place in the world to open a business. And they come and prove that to you um, at the same time that the team Biden is has they're not really doing it much anymore, but they spent all last year doing the whole, whole stop Asian hate thing, you know, and the rest of the country is like. Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, right. there is no, the, the Asian hate is in all the places that you govern and it's 100% your voters who hate the Asians and, you know, beat them up on street corners and all this other kind of stuff. And the reason is, is that it's resentment because, you know, the black community sees that all of the stores are owned by like these immigrants. Like, well, wait, well, where are our store owners? 
And the answer to that is anybody that would want to own a store who's black, they move the hell out of the, the black community into the suburbs where they can open a store and actually make money and not have people come steal everything, whatever. Because this is what left-wing politics has done to urban America. It's created, you know, a society of, of you know, Lord of the Flies, right? Well, and, you know, to your point, though, like in Minnesota, there was a very nice uh, black middle class um, in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And that's the part that got completely torched and burned out yep. in the riots after George Floyd. Yep. And so like, you know, they killed those communities. I mean, I don't know if you recall one video sticks in my mind and it was this black woman who started crying because the, the CVS that she walked to where she was safe to walk to where it was safe to be um was gone be and all those activists after it, after they like locust destroyed the the middle class black neighborhoods left and now all you have left and all those business people those black business owners to your point left yeah. and um didn't rebuild because why would they it, they would rebuild somewhere where their business isn't going to get burned out and stolen from and she had to take a bus now to a more dangerous area to get her medication. And I and she was sobbing. And I felt so badly for her because that's wh whose lives got got ruined. Yeah. Well, look, there's there is, uh, and I think it's greater now than ever before. And I think you're going to start seeing some movement in um, election returns as a result. Um, but you know, I, I don't know if it's like a third of the black population is black middle class people mm -hmm. um, who've largely, you know, begun and and more than just begun. I mean, they're moving to the suburbs. Yes. Okay. I mean, every one of these suburban areas in America that, you know, see the population growing, 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 the minority population is growing at a, at a, at the same rate that the, that the. It's true where I live. I live in the burbs yeah. of, of Houston and you know, um, my son's high school is super multicultural and it's all middle-class people, middle-class immigrants. It's interesting because a lot of the Asian immigrants, like from India, Pakistan, that sort of thing, um, they can't afford to quite buy a house. They're starting their business. So the, they we have really nice apartments within the community where I live and they live in the apartment buildings and you know really nice families and everything. And you see this with uh, um, other uh, minorities as well. And so they're, they're starting to build up their capital and then they're buying houses. And then they're, you know, and, and then they're starting you know, they're the business they might have started outside of the suburb. They're bringing into the suburb. Everything is is growing. They're they're getting the American dream is my point, but they're not getting it like they used to in American cities. Yeah. Well, and it's because the cities are dead. I mean, they're yeah. dead. Like, how are you going to build a business in St. Louis? I mean, like, you know, I mean, nobody nobody who's smart enough to actually make a business successful is going to try to build it in a place like that, right? Where, you know, where you, I mean, mm -hmm. you're gonna have a hard time getting workers to, to come and work for you because they don't want to work in, you know, your your physical plan is in a crappy neighborhood and they're worried about their car getting broken. They don't want to come work. Like 
you can the entire list, not to mention, you know, the city is going to send inspectors out to shake you down the whole bit. Yeah. Nobody wants to deal with any of that. Small business people do not want to deal with any of that. So they stay out of the cities increasingly because they know who runs those places. OK. And they know like what gets those people elected. Right. Uh they're, you know, they're going to pander to criminals. They're going to pander to welfare recipients. It's nonstop buying votes all day long, not doing any of the basic things that need to be done. Like, and I can launch into this whole thing. Maybe we'll probably have to do this in a different podcast, but like, I call it weaponized governmental failure. They're trying to drive the middle class out of these cities because the middle class voters are the ones that are going to vote Republican. And you yeah. can't run an urban Democrat political machine if 50% of the vote in you know, whatever the jurisdiction is, is apt to vote Republican when you don't do all the things with their tax dollars that they actually think are, are, are important. Filling potholes, educating kids, having safe streets and so forth. They don't want to do those things. OK, a long time ago, Democrats realized that you can continue to get somebody as bad as a Kwame Kilpatrick or Mark Marion Barry elected over and over again when there's no middle class voters to vote against them. And once they realized that, that was it. They didn't fill potholes anymore. Right. They, I mean, they let the police departments whittle down to nothing. And so now you've got every police department in a major city in America is 500 officers shy of its allotted, you know, safe uh, uh, force count. Right. That's not an accident. They don't want to hire cops. They don't want the police in control of the streets and they don't want to fill the potholes because then you get the kind of voters that would vote against a Latoya Cantrell or a Lori Lightfoot. Like they've cracked the code on this. Now, what that has done, and I'll get back to my other thing. What that has done is if you are black and you've got a decent enough job that you can get out of the inner city, you move to the suburbs. And once you're there, there is no machine demanding that you vote Democrat. And I'm not saying that most of them don't vote Democrat. But what I am going to say is this. If these guys won't tell the truth to an exit pollster, no idea how they're voting. Because if you've got, let's say you've got a precinct in the suburbs someplace that's 90 percent white and 10 percent black, throwing you know the other ethnic groups out of the, out of the mix. If it's 90 percent white and 10 percent black and it votes 75 percent Republican, 25 percent Democrat. How do you know how the how the ten percent that's middle class black people in that in that how do you know how they voted? Are they five percent five percent? Are they all ten Democrat? Are they nine to one? Or are there enough white liberals to make up the majority of that twenty five percent? Like you don't know. I would I would bet that it's the wine moms voting for the Democrats over a suburban black family. My theory is it's probably sixty forty Democrat among suburban blacks. That's my theory. And so the more they move out of that sort of machine Democrat thing where you really don't have a choice as to who to vote for, and you're sort of a lot more open as to, you know, uh, what your what your choices are, you're going to start to see more evidence of people voting for, you know, their actual personal interest, which if you're a middle class voter, right, um, and you're, you know, you're working a, a, a decent private sector job which, you know, the demographics of the black community and a lot of government workers. So there's that. But um, more and more, you get black people in private sector capitalist jobs living in a suburban area that's run by Republicans where the place is pretty well run. Right. And they fix the potholes and the schools aren't bad and whatever. And they came from the cities where it was totally different. 
sooner or later you're going to be like you know i don't really have to be a partisan democrat here right i mean you go you still go to a church right well i mean i think we're seeing morality as everybody else well i think we're seeing that with in in texas and other places with the hispanic vote that that they're even among the working class and the poor they're going wait up this right. is not working for us now. To your it's a different set of issues, but the dynamics I think are are advanced from where the black community is. Yeah, right. Well, here's my concern about what's going on, um, in the cities. Like, what did what was the term you used? Weaponized. Weaponized governmental failure. Weaponized governmental failure. Weaponized governmental failure. Absolutely, and that was employed, I think, by the teachers unions in, especially in um, cities. And it has put these children so far behind. And I think this is a civil rights issue because the, the, the single moms who are taking care of these children, overwhelmingly single mothers, are were having to make choices about whether to stay home and work or um, or work to take care of their children so that they could sco- be schooled or their children were being left unsupervised supervised so their mothers could go work and feed them. Mm-hmm. It is an absolute abject evil. Right. I had a friend who was in that situation in, um, in Houston and Houston kept the schools closed. They were finally forced by the state law to open, thank God. But it was still a semester or a year longer than the suburbs, you know, right next, right next door. Well, that the harms done are so severe yes. that I'm not sure that the children who endured this will ever be able to make up what was lost. And of course, these children can't vote, right? So, like, you have these these constituencies who are completely being taken advantage of. My friend had to move out of Houston to the suburbs where the schools were open so she could work and her children could be schooled effectively. But the but the cities should be doing this. I mean, they have massive budgets. There's no, no. So I'm kind of wondering long-term because it's become so extreme everywhere, what can be done? It's not okay in my opinion as an American to have the streets of Oakland or the streets of Los Angeles or any streets in America uh, littered with the with the homeless and the druggies and all the evil that's happening, right. that should be a problem. So, what do conservatives, what do Republicans well, I, do to to fight against this? So it's 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 interesting that you bring that up because here in Louisiana, um, about what two weeks ago, uh, Jeff Landry, who's the Attorney General of the state, uh, announced that he's going to run for governor. Now, Louisiana's elections are. 2023 okay so this is a year away Mm -hmm. um he's the favorite he probably is going to win you know there's like i I don't want to get into all of the historical dynamics of louisiana's elections it's a jungle primary state the whole bit but like the day after landry announces for governor and new orleans has all of the issues that you just talked about okay i mean like new orleans is if you've been there anywhere near recently, I mean, what what they have done to that city with Latoya Cantrell and the clowns that run that place is an abject crime. I mean, it's so bad that the 100 percent Democrat people of New Orleans are now trying to recall her. 
Um, and a year ago, she ran for re-election and like nobody of note even ran against her. It's, it's like, it's a, it's a totally pathetic situation. And New Orleans is the murder crap capital of planet Earth right now. I mean, like it, it's, they shoot you driving on the interstate. Like you just get shot and killed driving on the interstate through New Orleans. That's how bad it is. So um, Landry announces he's going to run for governor and he goes on Tucker Carlson the next night. And uh, they bring up Latoya Cantrell in New Orleans or whatever. And so in Landry's appearance uh, on Tucker, he talks as the governor of Louisiana, he says, has incredible amounts of power. He says, maybe the most powerful governor in America. He says, you make me governor and I now have the resources that I can go after these problems in New Orleans with the power of the state. And I will get in there and do something about it. That may be your model. Right. Because you're not going to fix the electorate in a city like New Orleans or St. Louis or Baltimore. You're not going to fix that electorate. That electorate is 50 years worth of weaponized governmental failure has created that electorate for a purpose. OK, it's going to elect the same people. But and you also can't just like leave it alone. Right. Like you can't just let the city decline in nothing because, first of all, they're going to blame you for that. And second of all, like. You know, I mean, it ruins the whole state's economy when the major city in the state or the two major cities in the state collapse. It doesn't matter how nice the sub. Detroit has amazingly nice suburbs and nobody thinks of, you know, oh, yeah, but the suburbs, they go, no, Detroit is a mess. Right. That's what people care about. What's so you, left you of it? What's that? I mean, the, uh, I'm from Michigan originally. Detroit has gone back to seed. Right. Literally, like right. it's just open fields in certain places where you might, you know, step on a crack pipe, but you're going to be, right. you know, yeah, the grass like, is growing, right? I mean, grass is growing. And, and the thing is, is like, to your point about this, um, Governor Abbott here in Texas has tried to deal with because, of course, Austin voted, you know, their city council letting, and, and this is, this is what I don't understand, but I think, I think. It's hard for me to imagine people being this cynical that they want they want failure in order to weaponize it for their own power. But really, there's no other explanation, is it? Like I found it unfathomable that the city council in Austin actively changed the rules so that people could camp on the sidewalks outside the Capitol. I'm like, why would that be good for anyone? You know. Well, and in a lot of these cities, it, they've, they, they get a little bit of a push, too, because every one of these cities is now controlled by these left wing um, activist groups that are funded by these nonprofits. Right. The Kellogg Foundation, the Open Society Foundation, the Ford Foundation. And like I think it was like a year ago, the New York Times did a whole piece on like the left is finally waking up to the fact that, hey, you know, what all these, what they're, what they're doing in all of these cities with these nonprofits that are advocating for all this stupid stuff like this kind of makes us non-competitive, right? Like at the state level. And, and so they interview this guy, I think his name is Darren Walker, who's like the president of the Ford Foundation. And he's like, yeah, our job is not to keep the Democrat party um, mainstream. Like that's not our job. Our job is to promote social justice. Right. Mm -hmm. And which, I, you know, I interpret as just total arrogance that, hey, we run this thing and we'll do whatever the hell we like because we have a billion dollars to spend this year. 
right? Mm -hmm. um, but the whole point is, is that if you're the city council goofball in Austin, who's voting for, you know, camping on the Capitol grounds, right? Mm -hmm. You may know it's a bad idea, but somebody who's got a big bankroll just came in, sat down in your office and said, you're for this? Because if you're not, we'll get somebody who is. And you right. know damn well that they control those votes. And so it's like, well, hopefully it'll work out. And I'm a good you know, leftist. So I think this is a social justice thing, even if it does create really awful quality of life issues for my constituents. They don't really, they never really cared about that. Otherwise they'd be promoting a business community and they'd be looking to tax their people less and all the rest of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Or even fill out the police force. Right. If, the, if you're supposed to have a thousand cops in town, you make sure you have a thousand cops in town. They have 500 and they think it's fine. Right. And they're like, well, we're going to hire some social workers instead of the cops. That way we can defund the police. OK, well, the thing is, the thing is with that, and I think this is going to be a problem, not just in the military and in the police force, but in any kind of you know, teachers, anything where you're having to deal with the consequences of um the scheme to get rid of the institutions that keep society going is that now the people who are so, who are attracted to those positions are absolutely insane because normies want nothing to do with it right. well, so like well, your the quality of the police the quality of the teachers the quality of you know fill in the blank person working in government job because it's so um, dangerous in, in, in some very real cases. I mean, I saw a video yesterday on Twitter um, where a you know a teacher was just flat out punched straight out. Yeah. yeah, I saw that. Well, what I would say is this: normies will still go work for the sheriff's department in uh, you know uh, the the county next to the city. Right. Yeah, and that's, that, and that's a perfectly functional police force. And they make arrests and they clear somebody gets murdered in the suburbs. And that case gets there. That gets cleared with an arrest and they prosecute him and they put the SOB in jail for the rest of his life. Like the system still works in the suburbs. All right. And that gets me back to like this whole thing that Landry was talking about. The solution to this and how you fix this is for red governors of you know red or purple states to go into blue cities and basically sweep local government aside and say you're not running a police force that keeps this place safe fine i'm bringing in the state police i'm staffing them up and we're going in and if it's an invading and occupying army if i got to bring in the national guard i'm doing it because i am not going to have you you know have, turn your place into a shooting gallery so that dependent people are gonna vote Democrat all day long. I'm not gonna put up with it because my people who live in the suburbs and have to work in your hell hole of a city are not gonna to tolerate being carjacked on the way home. They're not gonna to tolerate it. And so I'm gonna do something about it. And I'm gonna have a state, I'm gonna have the state police with AR-15s on every street corner if I have to. And I mean, like that's the answer because let me tell you something, you wanna serve a constituency, you be that governor. And you say, I don't give a damn what the Austin City Council says. We're going to make sure that Austin's a safe city, period. And we're like, okay, this is a Republican who doesn't back down from the morons on the six o'clock news or when Vice sends a reporter down to talk about the fascist governor of Texas or whatever and says, you know what? Screw you, Vice. Go to hell, right? You guys, you guys have been touting 
policies that created this problem. I'm going to solve it and don't, you know, I, I, don't, I don't give a damn what you have to say. I mean, for the longest time, they used to run those stories about Joe Arpaio over and over and over and over again. And there was no way Joe Arpaio was ever going to get voted out of office until he turned 90 years old and got a little loopy in, at the back end. But I mean, he was and he was doing he was doing things to humiliate prisoners. He had them wearing pink and, and all this other kind of stuff. No air conditioning in the, you know, in the jails and all like in the middle of summer in Arizona. Like he did he did things basically to show, hey, look, you really don't want to go to jail in Maricopa County. Right. Don't commit a crime here because you're going to hate the results. And, you know, I don't it's know. Interesting. I don't agree with everything he did. But I mean, that guy yeah. sustained a political machine of his own in a major metropolitan area for a very long time because he had a style that was unafraid of you know, the left wing legacy corporate media, you know, machine that like took cracks at him every six months. They do a new hit piece on Joe Arpaio and it all rolled off his back for 15 years. He didn't care. That's the kind of thing that actually gets you somewhere. What doesn't get you somewhere is being Bill Cassidy and trying to get a belly rub from the mainstream media. Those are the people that Republican voters decided they can't stand anymore. Um, and, and the minute they smoke somebody out that, that is going to be that way, they abandon them in droves. I mean, that, well, that's how that's how you got Trump. I mean, it is literally how you got Trump. And it's how we're going to get Trump again. The yeah, you know, no. there's a sign that coming in from Harris County into Montgomery County that says the criminals turn around here. We prosecute crimes and you will go to jail. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's like literally the county line on 45. So, and if, okay. you, and if you fulfill that, ultimately it has an effect. Oh, yeah. And everybody, you know, it, it, it's a known thing. Um, but uh, it's terrible that, you know, the, the crime is, is that Harris County and Houston had enviable um, crime stats. It was it was a good it, it had it was a pit of despair in the 80s and 90s and completely got turned around all the different parts of town that were dangerous or safe all the wonderful things happen and what do we get we get one soros funded uh judge which in texas they have a lot of power and she has ruined the city it's no time at all either yeah, and it just completely destroyed. It, it's alarming. And um, so anyway, so speaking of Trump, so we have all these candidates who are supposedly bad candidates who are, <laughs> which was the story a couple weeks ago, right? When the primaries were over, even the even Mitch McConnell was talking down his own candidates because of course they weren't his picks. So the establishment is very disloyal to the GOP if they, if they don't pick people. Well, it's been amazing to see, oh, and they also don't support their own, um, so like Ron Johnson's being talked down by his own party, Mike Lee's being talked down by the establishment of his own party. And you're like, what, what gives here? These are solid Republican senators. Well, because it's, they're the people you and I like, Melissa. That's well, exactly. I mean, I love Ron Johnson. And, and so then you have, then you have these new candidates like JD Vance and um, Blake Masters, Blake Masters who are doing remarkably well and are really solid candidates 
And these were the people who were kind of the GOP was talking down. And these are the people uh, like Carrie Le Lake in Arizona running for governor who the Democrats wanted, right? Because they thought that they could just destroy them. Well, these people are like fighters. And doing a, a remarkably good job. Like, I don't know if you've seen any of the debates and what you think about that, oh, yeah. but I've been well, really impressed. Well, I mean, Vance and, and Masters absolutely mauled yeah. Tim Ryan and Mark Kelly. I mean, it was yeah. ugly how bad they, I mean, yeah. beat the living hell out. Even Herschel Walker, who, you know, you're like, oh my God, he's going to get murdered. I, I mean, I didn't see that whole debate, but what I saw of it, I mean, Herschel destroyed him. You know, yeah. and then and then he said, "Okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm not going to do another one." <laughs> and I don't blame him at all because it probably wasn't going to get any better than that. But the well, did is you see the Herschel Walker interview? I mean, I had to laugh because they because the interviewer asked him. Uh, it was a long sit down. You know, what's one good thing that Biden has done? And he sat there and he was trying. He's like, well, he likes ice cream. And he couldn't think of one good thing. And I was like, and I was like, I don't know how I'd answer that question. What? What is she hoping he'd point well, to? Okay. Do, when would they ever ask AOC that question of Trump? Right? I mean, oh, right. That, oh, like, yeah. that's the difference between Herschel oh, and like Carrie Lake. Carrie Lake would have blown up. It's like, why would you even ask me that question? You know, I don't have anything good to say. Guy, He's the worst president ever. Next question, right. which I really wish Herschel would have done, but it's not going to be his style. So that's fine. Right. Um, no, I know. But I, I, it was still kind of funny, though, him just sitting there going, well, <laughs> right. it was this guy. Well, I mean, you know, like this nice country boy that doesn't really want to say too much bad about anybody. And I think there's a certain charm in that. I mean, the, I don't I don't remember whose poll it was, but poll popped today and it's even money between Warnock and Walker. Right. And Brian Kemp is running away with that. The governor's race. I think it's 12 points now. Yeah. I don't know how you handicap that thing other than Herschel Lentz, um, because at the very minimum, what you're going to get is a runoff because the libertarian will siphon away, you know, whatever, two, three points, four points. Yeah. And so that puts you in a runoff and in a runoff when it's Walker and Warnick. And by then, let's say the Republicans have 51. Right. And so, like, you already have control of the Senate. They're not going to put money behind. They're going to start putting money behind 2024 at that point. I mean, there's, why would you, what do you care? Right. So I, like to me, if I had to bet on that one, I think Herschel's going to win. I don't know that he wins by a lot, but I don't know that it matters. I mean, it doesn't matter if you win. He by only has to win by a, a vote. Right. The, thing, the, you know, the other questions are, so do you think Oz wins? Do you yeah. think he beats Fetterman? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, Fe <laughs> I don't know how you turn. I mean, I said this before. I don't know how you turn the vote out for that. That's like the that's the worst candidate I've ever seen for anything. I've never seen a city council candidate that bad. I mean, this guy is. <laughs> I, you know, the thing is, I think it's going to be close. I think well, I think it probably is. I mean, they're always close in Philadelphia, in uh, Pennsylvania. Okay, I mean, he gets a hundred percent of the vote in Philly. Yeah, but what is that going to be though? Right. Like, what's that going to be? Are they going to be able to turn out that massive machine for him? I mean, they turned it out for Biden. Yeah, okay, I get it. But the thing about Biden was, if you're a partisan Democrat, Joe Biden had a long um, career. I mean, I think Joe Biden's always been a jackass. Always. Uh, and like and a dumb uh, one the worst be. of all politicians. Okay. Yeah. But partisan Democrats like jackasses like Joe Biden. Yeah, and they okay. never really thought he was 
particularly presidential material, but he was their kind of politician for like a very long time. So the fact that he was, you know, this uh, demented old pervert that, you know, was probably the most loathsome figure in American political history, that didn't really bother them because they remember like smarmy Joe Biden who took down Robert Bork, right? Mm -hmm. So, oh, he's one who's a good guy. Fetter, like, who is Fetterman? Like, Fetterman is this kind of nobody. They don't care who the lieutenant governor is. They made him lieutenant governor. Okay, it's fine. And nobody really knew who the guy was. And now they're looking like, that guy can't make complete sentences. And what's that thing on his neck? Right? Um, and so, like, everything about his story, if you're not a hardcore, hard left, Bernie bro, super partisan Democrat, if you're just sort of like a regular, ordinary Democrat that, like, you know, doesn't isn't overly political, that guy's a humiliation for you. And yeah, probably more of them will vote for him than won't, but a whole lot of them may be like, I'm not even gonna vote. Okay, so so we had on our pages at the American Spectator, somebody uh, Ali Alexander wrote a piece basically saying that we're at a decision moment in American history. This election he thinks it's going to be far closer than it than it should be and that what that shows is that america has gone tribal that it doesn't matter who the candidate is that the democrats will vote for a inert turnip yeah. um like fetterman just because he has a d behind his name and that we have policies don't matter anymore um, the politicians don't even matter anymore. It's all tribal. Well, I think that the bulk of the Democratic Party, um, that is a hundred percent true of. Okay, I mean, I, I would, I would say that. I would say that they've gotten to the point where um, they can't really be about policy, right? Because their policies really don't work, right? Mm -hmm. Like. It's, I mean, you know, this isn't like back in the 60s, you know, you had like Kennedy and, and the sort of, you know, the old Daniel Patrick Moynihan liberals. I mean, they had all of this really high minded stuff that a great society and all the rest of this kind of thing that that the Democrat Party was about in the 60s. And they were going to transform this place and they were going to turn it into, you know, a, a real, you know, kind of social utopia. And all of that crashed and burned. And they really haven't had a new idea on policy um, since the Great Society, all right? I mean, everything else is sort of just repackaged socialism. I mean, that's, what, that's all the Green New Deal is, okay? It's just a new justification for the same old crap that, that didn't work before. Um, and, you know, and dressing, dressing things up. I mean, Obamacare was the last big thing that they did. Right. And Obamacare was, I mean, it's just a, it's let's move the ball toward socialized medicine. It's all it is. Right. Which is an ancient idea that all of the Western European countries have all, you know, done various iterations of. And it hadn't really worked in any of those places. Um, you know, I mean, the NIH in, in um, uh, or NHS rather in Great Britain is a utter disaster. Um so, like, they don't have any new ideas. So if you're a Democrat voter, it's not about policy. In fact, what it really is about, more than anything else, it's not even about loyalty to the Democratic Party. It's about hatred of Republicans. 
Mm. Okay. It's yeah. about visceral, um, uh, you know, vituperative, often violent hatred of, uh, of, of the Republican Party, of its candidates, and of its voters. Okay. So anytime they run across a signifier of somebody who doesn't agree with their tribal political view, I mean, it, like the, the level of animus that those guys will bring out is terrifying. I mean, it really is. It's very, very frightening. Um, and it affects everything. I mean, politics doesn't stop at the water's edge. It doesn't stop anywhere. I mean, it affects dating. It affects commerce. It, I mean, and like it is right now. Every I mean, aspect. yeah, every aspect of Americans' lives right now is politicized. Yeah. And I don't know that we go back. Well, I think that the if you can go back, the way it works is that you have a Republican Party that clearly shows that it's able to dominate and govern in the places where it has a majority. Um, and you make it very stark, the difference between red states and red cities and red areas that work and blue states areas and, and, and cities that don't work. And eventually, you know, you have enough, and, and, and I'll give you, there's a number in, in my column at the American Spectator today, I talked about this, where, you know, there are no more moderate Democrats and Joe Manchin is proof, right? They put him out there as a moderate, but he's nothing of the sort. And the reason for that is that a moderate Democrat can't really run for office in America anymore because you can't get the support of your own party. And one of the things Trump happens is a Fox News poll from like a week and a half ago um, that talked about, hey, would you like to see more or less socialism in America's future? And it's 60 to 32 overall in favor of less socialism, more capitalism. In the Democrat Party, it's 53 more socialism and 35 more capitalism. That 35%, okay, those are the moderate Democrats. They have nobody to represent them anymore, all right? And the real question is, is when are those guys going to smarten up and get the hell out of that party? And I think that, you know, you're going to start to see it. That's Hispanics, it's Asians, it's middle-class Black people, particularly young uh, Black men are, like, amazingly more Republican than than otherwise, Um and so, you, you know, you, you start to see in these groups that they have, and these are people that always have been Democrat, but nothing about that works for them anymore because they're actually Americans and they have a traditional American mindset and they, they see things like transgender advocacy, right? And sex changes for kids. And they go, wait, I, I'm voting for that? Like, I don't want to vote for that. Why, why do I have to vote for that? Okay, okay. So before, because we're almost to the end here right. and out of time. So there were two polls that just came out that Trump wins either by a little or a lot against Biden, right. which has to have Liz Cheney just absolutely everything that she sacrificed for her hatred is coming up to naught. But there have been some discussion about because Ron DeSantis, when you look at the polls, you know, Trump has 46 percent. A year ago, he had like 76 percent, but now he's got 46 percent of the Republican base. Right. And DeSantis has in the high 20s. Right. And as his recognition, name recognition gets up there. Now, Megan Kelly and Dave Rubin yesterday got into it. Did you see that? Yeah. Yes. And I'm she, glad I, we're going to talk about this. 
Yes. So I a hundred percent agree with Megan Kelly, um, that Republic that Trump sucks the oxygen out of the room. No one has his charisma that, and that I don't think DeSantis even runs if Trump runs and shouldn't if Trump runs and will never be his vice president either, which is some people's pipe dream. What yeah, are your thoughts? I him. I know I, you finish your second term as governor if, you, if you're DeSantis. And then two years in, you tell Trump, look, you're going to, you know, give me a job in the cabinet. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you make me something. Right. Because there's like two years in, you're always going to change some people out. And so you bring DeSantis in, in the cabinet and everybody's like, ooh, we get to see what this guy can do. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for him, you do that for like a year and then you run for president in 2028 and you're the you're the heir apparent. And you're the guy. I mean, it, it makes perfect sense because like and I wrote this a while back at the Spectator. But wait a minute. What? Who's Trump's vice president then? Do we care? Do I we don't. Care? But no. But I mean, I think I think it'll be interesting who he chooses. Well, you, obviously, you need somebody who's loyal. Um, you know, you well, probably- that that list is about nobody because i don't even think his own family's loyal well i I mean i look as i like trump a lot i don't know that i would want to work for him right like he's he's kind of a tough boss um but you know he's also the kind of guy that politics it's it's not a natural fit for that because he actually is like you know kind of a construction mentality which politics is like not like at all um I don't know who his, his, his VP choice is going to be. I mean, it would make perfect sense. You get somebody who's a woman, right? Like you you should, if you're Trump, you, you want to have a, a woman VP. But I think if you're Trump, you also don't want to get somebody and then say, okay, so this is my uh, heir apparent, right? Because you will have a certain fatigue in his second term. And DeSantis at that point carries on something almost identical to Trump's agenda, except that it's fresh when he does it. Yeah. So I, if I'm Trump, I don't get in the way of that. And frankly, that's probably the deal that I make with him at some point, which is, look, you and I are going to you know, team up. You're going to stay here in Florida for another couple of years, and then I'll bring you up. But you're my guy for 2028. And it's like I said, um, you know, I wrote this in Spectator, I don't know, a couple of three weeks ago or whatever. We need Trump and DeSantis because it's going to take a very long time First of all, to transfer or or, uh, transition the Republican Party from this Bush Republican crap that's still sitting there at the top to something that's fully, you know, MAGA or revivalist or America first or whatever you want to call it. Um, You know, that that has to filter up from the state legislature to the state house, to to Congress, to the Senate, to governor's mansions and on on up to the president. You know, otherwise you have the same issue that you had with Reagan, because Reagan was sort of the first iteration of populist conservatism Mm -hmm. and the problem reagan had was that reagan didn't have an heir apparent that he could put on the ticket with him he had to have bush who yeah but the problem that he had was making a deal with the devil and having bush's veep to begin with i get it but if he'd had somebody that he could have like said no no, i don't need bush because this is my guy and he's going to take over he didn't have that guy right because the movement at that point was reagan and he didn't, there were, right. there were, there you were know guys what? that weren't ready for that. Right. He's like Obama. He he would led the way. And then, you know, Obama, there's no bench. Yeah, there's no, there's no one coming there. behind. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so, and so 
that was the problem you had. So it's in, incumbent on Trump if he wants to have a legacy, if he's going to go back in in 2024. He has got to stack a bench behind him that, hey, you know, I'm like an Abe Lincoln for the Republican Party in 1860 that I've got all of these guys coming behind me that were cabinet secretaries or people that they got elected to, you know, House and Senate. And you had a train of Republican politicians following Lincoln, U.S. Grant being the, you know, the, the number one guy who were able to like continue that legacy and continue that political style and, and policy agenda moving forward. And you know, I don't like, know that here's a, here. I'm going to just be the devil's advocate because I'm agreeing with everything that you say. However, one thing I've seen in politics is that two years is kind of a lifetime. Yeah. And we're and we're seeing some the seeds of some Republicans coming along um, that I'm like, I could see. Uh, I mean, Tom Cotton wants to run for president. Right. Well, Abbott will run for president. I could see J.D. Vance or being someone who Trump this would be for 2028. Yeah, yeah. Who Trump would be more likely to support than DeSantis or even someone like Carrie Lake. She comes along and is a great governor. Right. And, and, um, you know, yeah, what I would, what I would the- say though, is that they're all going to have a pretty similar agenda though. Right. Well, that's I mean, true. They are going to have a difference between them. Um, they're not, none of them are Bush Republicans. And so while right yeah. now it's obviously DeSantis, maybe it's not right. Mm-hmm. Like maybe in it, maybe, I mean, well, that, that's okay. campaigning. It's a Tom Cotton or a Carrie Lake or somebody like that that pulls it off. I don't well, know. The reason I bring that up is because I'm thinking, does DeSantis think looking at this field that now it's now or never and take, take on the bull while the, while, while he can. I think the only way that happens is if there are things that happen which uh, make Trump uh, less electable, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, does he have a stroke? Does he have a heart attack? Um, You know, they're going to probably try to indict him. Is there meat on those bones? I doubt it. But like, is it is it enough of a damaging thing? I mean, there are a number. The thing is, though, like Scott, wait a minute. If he gets indicted, which I think that they will do after the midterms. I think so, too. Okay, then in certain states, I think in Georgia and either North or South Carolina, he can't be on the ticket as long as he's under indictment. Right. So which would mean that by he cannot win in those states. So you see what I'm saying? Like that would be. No, I mean, well, like that would be that would be a reason why it's not workable. And all of a sudden, Trump's got to kind of move into kingmaker mode. I mean, and, and at that point, yeah, DeSantis jumps in and he's the guy and he does it. He unites the party. And it's like, OK, well, you know, I mean, um, you know, he's kind of Trump is William Wallace and DeSantis is Robert the Bruce. Right. Like, yeah. Um, huh? I, yeah. I mean, you know, and like I said, we need a lot. I, I, I would really, really. I don't like this. And I don't like that analogy, Scott, only because Robert the Bruce didn't last very long. We we really. It, we need someone who's right. gonna usher in a a new a yeah, new well, okay. if you if you'd rather it's you know washington and adams and jefferson and so forth even though okay. those guys didn't get along enough to really know but analogy very well. um, <laughs> but anyway the point the point is like i'm not wrapped up in you know who's it going to be here and who's it going to be there like i need the team to win you know, and if that means going through a number of different quarterbacks, then let's go through a number of different quarterbacks. Let's try to minimize the amount of infighting and whatever. 
But what's got to happen is, you know, the agenda and the and the 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 party building and the the political style needs to set in that hey, we're not a submissive, mm-hmm. subservient party and play Washington generals to the Democrats, Harlem Globetrotters anymore. I mean, if you could actually fix that stuff, you get to the point where it doesn't really matter that much who your candidates are, right? Well, like, and the thing is too, the, I I do think you're right. And one of one of the um, activities that's happening right now is all the turnover on school boards. Mm-hmm. We, now we have conservatives or people to the right paying attention to every, yeah. you know, who the dog catcher is. And once once people like the normies, once normal people realize what the psychotic lefties have been up to in all these little parts and pieces of the government and the you know, the uh, bureaucracy and start taking those over. It's all over for the ideology. And so I do think that's starting to happen. Okay. So this is, we have to end this because we're already at an hour and 15 minutes. And so, so for those of you who are listening to us, I really hope you give us a lot of feedback and tell us what you think how you think we should, should it be longer? Should it be shorter? Should we focus just on one issue? Um, Should we be talking about something that we didn't talk about today? Um, I'd also like to remind everybody to read uh, and buy, more importantly, buy. We've got to support our conservative writers. Uh, Scott McKay's book, The The Revivalist Manifesto, big yellow book. Yep. And then on Amazon. Check it out on Amazon. We'll put the links hopefully on YouTube and everywhere so that you can easily find it. We're still working out the kinks, everybody, by the way. This is the first one. So if if, if we're a little bit off, that's why. You can find it right now um, if you look up Scott's information on Amazon or on our website so you can find it. The other thing is, is on this Thursday, we have our gala. And so we will be putting up at theamericanspectator.com uh, link to watch what's happening. We're honoring Byron York of the Washington Examiner for his political reporting. And our speaker for the evening will be um, Newt Gingrich. Gingrich, <laughs> having problems. And then we're going to have a special announcement. Bob Terrell, our Emmett Terrell, who's running the American Spectator, will be giving up and and I don't want to give the secret away, but he'll have an announcement at the dinner. And then, of course, Scott will be there. I will not, yeah. uh, unfortunately. But in my stead, Scott McKay will be there. He'll be representing the South. Woo! And uh, and uh, and I'll be stuck here in Houston. But anyway, I hope that you'll give us feedback and that you like um, like what you're hearing. And let us know if there's some guests that you'd like to have on. All that sort of thing. We're at the very beginning stages of this. And so thank you, Scott, for um, being my co-host. And thank you all for watching. And uh, I appreciate your support of the American Spectator. And remember, you can always donate and help conservative writing. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you next week. See you guys.